John chapter 11. If you were here last week, we looked at the raising of Lazarus, and tonight's passage is the closing verses of the chapter, but to put them in context, let's pick up the narrative at verse 32. Lazarus was seriously ill. Jesus was informed of that. But by the time Jesus arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had died. Jesus has spoken to one of Lazarus' sisters, Martha, and he now has a conversation with Mary. John chapter 11, verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you, have all, that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. 
Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? But he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This evening's passage is verses 45 to the end, verses 45 to 57. If only all Christians lived as Jesus did, the churches would be bursting at the seams. The gospel would be irresistible. I remember being in company many years ago and hearing a friend say that. I'd like you to keep that comment in mind as we look at these closing verses of John chapter 11. In this short series in John's Gospel, we've been reminded how John calls Jesus' miracles signs. That's a favorite word of John for the miracles. They're signs because they flag up who Jesus is and why he came. They're signposts to his identity and mission. In chapter 9, we saw how Jesus healed a man born blind. Only God can make the blind to see. But that's what Jesus did. And the conclusion John wants us to draw is that Jesus must be God. And that's not all. The miracle is a kind of acted parable in giving physical sight to a man who was physically blind. Jesus was pointing to the more profound truth that he had come into this world to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. Here in chapter 11, we have the raising to life of a man who was dead. Jesus raised the dead Lazarus. He raised him to life again. Who can bring the dead back to life? Only God can. The miracle is another sign that Jesus is God. And it also nudges us to see that, more importantly, Jesus gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead. As you will recall, if you were here last week, Lazarus really was dead. He'd been dead for four days when Jesus arrived in Bethany. Lazarus' sister Martha protested when Jesus asked for the stone covering the entrance to be removed. She knew that already the body would have begun to decompose. Both Mary and Martha were sure that Jesus could have healed Lazarus if he had come in time. But it was now too late. Lazarus was dead. Nothing could be done. The situation was absolutely hopeless. But Jesus was undaunted. He called on the dead man to come out of the tomb. And amazingly, Lazarus responded. He emerged in his grave clothes, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. What a sight that must have been. The people of Bethany had known Lazarus well. 
They'd been aware of his illness. They'd attended his funeral. And here they see the dead man stumbling out of his tomb before their very eyes. No wonder, as we're told in verse 45, many of the Jews who'd come with Mary to the tomb and witnessed the miracle believed in Jesus. They had witnessed something extraordinary. And they realized that they were in the presence of someone extraordinary. Someone who did what only God could do. But not everyone who saw the miracle was so impressed. Verse 45, verse 46 introduces a but. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Perhaps they were disturbed by the excitement Jesus was generating. After all, he operated outside the normal religious structures. He didn't have the right kind of religious pedigree. He was a relative nobody from Nazareth in Galilee. Perhaps they felt uncomfortable in Jesus' presence. They simply didn't like what he was doing. That brings me to my first main point this evening. Jesus divides. Jesus divides. Remember what what my friend said. If only all Christians lived as Jesus lived, the churches would be bursting at the seams. The gospel would be irresistible. This passage shows that even when Jesus raised a dead man to life again, he didn't win universal acclaim. Now, there's some truth in what my friend said. Many of us who call ourselves Christians are poor witnesses for the gospel. We fail to live consistent Christian lives, and as a result, Our impact on society around us is blunted. We need to face up to that. But what my friend overlooked was the fact that even when Christians live and witness well, the response will be mixed. Some people will be attracted, but others will react adversely. Perhaps they will feel convicted by consistent Christian living. Or they'll dismiss it as holier than thou. Or they'll question the motives behind it or whatever. And that's what we should expect. Because Jesus himself provoked mixed reactions. He attracted some, but he alienated others. He drew some, but he repelled others. Even a stupendous miracle for which the evidence was so strong created division. The same sun that softens wax hardens clay. The fact is that Jesus divides. When the conservative Christian uh, religious leaders, the Pharisees, were told that Jesus had raised Lazarus to life again, they were incandescent. They and the chief priests called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, 
to decide what should be done. Verse 47. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. It's interesting, isn't it, that the religious leaders acknowledge that Jesus was performing many miracles. They didn't question the authenticity of the miracles. They didn't dismiss Jesus as a fraudster. It was the potential impact of what he was doing that bothered them. They were afraid that unless something was done, he would attract so many followers there would be a popular uprising. And as a result, the Romans would intervene, come down hard on the Jews, and end the semi-autonomy they enjoyed within the Roman Empire. Perhaps Palestine would lose its separate identity and be caught up in a different administrative setup. Perhaps the Romans would impose religious sanctions. They might even bring temple worship in Jerusalem to an end. And integral to all this was the threat which the Pharisees and the other religious leaders saw to their own status and position. They had a vested interest in defending the status quo. Their religion, their nation, their status were all under threat. Such religious, political, and personal considerations meant far more to them than who Jesus was. They had no inclination to consider whether Jesus might be the long-awaited Messiah, the evidence of his teaching and miracles that God was in their midst counted for nothing when what they saw as their own personal interests were at stake. You see, they were not unbiased observers. Nor are we unbiased when it comes to weighing up the claims of Jesus and the Christian gospel. The Bible says that we all have a natural antipathy towards God. We want to do our own thing. We want to go our own way. Our antipathy to God may be dressed up to look very respectable. Yes, I really am very open-minded. I just need a little more evidence. Jesus said some very good things. I accept that. But to say that he was unique... Well, that's going just a little bit too far. I respect you for having a faith. I think that's a great thing, but I don't happen to need God to lead a happy and fulfilled life. It all sounds so reasonable, but at bottom, it reflects hearts that are prejudiced and unbelieving. Not even miracles constrain belief. I remember hearing a man in Southampton saying in the 1980s that what we needed in the church today was more miracles in the supermarket. But here we have an example of the most tremendous miracle. The evidence was so clear. Lazarus was walking about among them. And yet people refused to see the miracle for what it was. They refused to acknowledge its implications. In fact, they wanted to get rid of the evidence. 
Turn with me, please, to the next chapter in your Bibles and to to verse 9 of chapter 12. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The religious establishment was so hostile to Jesus, they were prepared to get rid of the evidence for his latest and greatest miracle. Jesus divides. Perhaps you're here this evening and you're not a Christian. What do you make of Jesus? He gave a blind man his sight. He raised a man who'd been dead four days to life again. Do you see that the evidence points to Jesus being more than just a man? Are you prepared to follow that evidence where it leads? Or do you prefer to explain the evidence away? There is a choice to be made. Jesus divides. Secondly, the religious authorities plot. Jesus posed a threat to the religious and political establishment. Following the raising of Lazarus, that threat became all the greater. What was to be done? In order to address that question, an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin was called. That was the Jewish ruling council. In the debate that was held, a significant contribution was made by Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. The the, the Sadducees were a religious party who were more liberal in their theological outlook than the Pharisees. The Sadducees were very politically aware. They had keen political antennae. They were in very good terms with the occupying Romans. Interestingly, the Jewish historian Josephus comments that a characteristic of the Sadducees was their rudeness. And this is perhaps borne out by the way Caiaphas appears to rubbish the other members of the council Verse 49, you lot know nothing at all. You don't have a clue, you're all at sea. That's hardly the way to win friends and influence people. But of more significance is the proposal Caiaphas has to make. Look with me please at verse 50. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas seems to be saying, look, if this man Jesus poses a threat to our nation, if on account of what he's doing, the Romans are likely to come down hard on us and deprive us of our privileged standing within the empire, then it's better to get him out of the way. What's one man's life compared with our continued existence as a nation? In the interests of the greater good, Surely his death would be a price worth 
pain. Caiaphas clearly thought Jesus should be killed, and that was how the Sanhedrin understood his words. We read in verse 53 how from that day they made plans to put him to death. As he spoke, Caiaphas may have had in mind the story of seven brothers who had died in the second century BC at the hands of the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes because they protested against the pagan customs he had introduced in Jerusalem and Judea. Before his death, the youngest brother expressed confidence that God would soon show mercy to the nation. He said, In me and in my brethren, the wrath of the Almighty, which has justly been brought upon all our nation, shall cease. In other words, the judgment which the nation merited would, as it were, be absorbed by the brothers, and the nation would thus be spared. Caiaphas was suggesting in a similar way that instead of all the Jews falling under the judgment of Rome, it would be better for judgment to fall on the one man, Jesus. What Caiaphas said had some logic to it, but it was the logic of the pit. Let's step back for a moment. Here we have the high priest, the most senior religious dignitary in Judaism, meant to represent people to God and God to people. And here he's calling for the death of the incarnate Son of God. He wants to get rid of him. He wants to liquidate him. God's representative is calling for God in human form to be killed. How shocking is that? Surely there can be no greater sin than to kill God's Son. And it's none other than God's representative, the high priest, who is calling for it. Caiaphas demonstrates that it's never enough to be religious. You can be very religious and yet be an enemy of God. More generally, Caiaphas shows how dark the human heart really is. That's something that John, the writer of this gospel, is at pains to draw to our attention. In chapter 1, he writes of the true light coming into the world and says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Later in chapter 3, John writes, This is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Rejecting the light of God, wanting him out of the way, is what sin is all about in essence. That's why way back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in an act of willful disobedience. They questioned the wisdom and goodness of God. They wanted to live independently of Him. They wanted to determine good and evil for themselves. Caiaphas reflects the anti-God bias we all have by nature. 
He sat in judgment on Jesus. He thought he was expendable. He wanted rid of him. He wanted him dead. But it was Caiaphas and his hostility to God that really were being exposed and judged. In rejecting the one who was the light of the world and choosing the darkness of sin and rebellion, he was condemning himself. Do you know the Negro spiritual? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? It's reminding us that in a sense, we all had a hand in Jesus' death. Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. We may not have been at Calvary in person, but if we had been, we would have acted no differently. We all by nature have sinful, unbelieving hearts. We all love darkness rather than light. The religious leaders took that to the extent of plotting against Jesus to bring about his death. And the question for you and for me is this, what will we do with Jesus? Jesus divides the religious leader's plot. Finally, God overrules. God overrules. Please look with me at verses 51 and 52. He, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John is making the point that there was a depth of meaning to Caiaphas's words of which he himself was unaware. He was calling for Jesus' death with worldly calculation and hostile intent. He wanted to save the Jews from the vengeance of Rome. But unwittingly, he was expressing a profound spiritual truth. Jesus would die to save others. He would die in the place of others. His death would be substitutionary. But it wouldn't be just the Jews he would save, but rather the worldwide people of God. And it wouldn't be the vengeance of Rome from which he would save them, but rather the wrath and judgment of a holy God. Caiaphas spoke wiser than he knew because God was providentially overruling in what he said, just as he would providentially overrule in the circumstances of Jesus' actual death. You see, God had a plan. And that plan was being worked out even through the wicked plotting and evil actions of men. Caiaphas was calling for the death of Jesus and the religious leaders were plotting to that end. They wanted to be rid of someone they saw as a threat. All they were concerned about was the maintenance of the religious and political status quo. And they were fully responsible for their actions. They crucified the Son of God. 
As the Apostle Peter says elsewhere, he died at the hands of lawless men. But God was also at work in the situation and for different ends. The cross was no accident. It didn't take God by surprise. Jesus' death was in accordance with God's plan and purpose. It was God's will that through his death, Jesus should bear the punishment of human sin and secure forgiveness for all who would put their trust in him. At one and the same time, the cross of Christ was the supreme demonstration of human evil and the decisive victory of God over sin and Satan. Because God overruled the actions of evil men and used them to accomplish his grand plan of unimaginable blessing for the world. And here in John chapter 11, in anticipation of the cross, Caiaphas' words convey a double meaning. They highlight human intention on the one hand, but divine purpose on the other. You may be wondering why verse 51 describes Caiaphas' words as a prophecy and says he did not speak of his own accord. Why, you may ask, would God use a bad man? Why would he speak through a bad man? But that's precisely the point. God used the hostile words of Caiaphas to highlight the significance of Jesus' death just as he later used the culpable actions of the religious and political establishment in crucifying Jesus to secure salvation for lost men and women. Throughout his gospel, John balances human action and divine purpose. Alongside the opposition Jesus faced in his ministry, he sets God's settled will and purpose. For example, in chapter 6, Jesus highlights the Jews' unbelief and says, I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. But he goes on, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whosoever comes to me I will never cast out. Despite human opposition, even by means of human opposition, God's purposes were being fulfilled. And God's purposes will never be thwarted. These aren't easy issues to grapple with, and there's profound mystery in how human will interacts with divine purpose. We cannot understand how it all fits together, But you don't have to understand how electricity works to flick a switch and get the benefit of light. And in much the same way, you don't have to understand the complexities of God's overruling to derive comfort from it. In a world of instability and uncertainty, it's good to know that God is never taken by surprise. God's never on the back foot. He's never at a loss what to do. Not even the worst of human evil can stand in his way. Nothing and no one can resist him. 
No weapon that is formed against him will prosper. That's a great comfort for those who are his people. Not least in these days of tremendous instability in our world. But it's also a salutary warning to those who are still God's enemies. I may shake my puny fist in God's face, but that will achieve absolutely nothing except to confirm my condemnation. God's plan will not be derailed. In the closing verses of our passage, we see Jesus withdrawing from the environs of Jerusalem to a more remote area. He knew the chief priests and the Pharisees were looking for him. Did he go into hiding because he was afraid? I don't think so. He withdrew because God's time for him to be handed over to his enemies had not yet come. Jesus was in control of the situation. He was not working to his enemy's timetable. When he was arrested, it was because he allowed himself to be. As he later said to Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Even in the moment of death, he was in control. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus divides. The religious leaders plot. God overrules. Do you recognize who Jesus is and why he came? Do you see that in accordance with God's plan, he came into our world to rescue sinners like you and like me. Shall we pray? Words from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Our Father, we thank you for the assurance that you have a plan. We thank you for the way in which that plan 
was worked out at the cross of Calvary, where evil men did their worst, and yet you were at work to bring salvation to a, a, a limitless number. We pray that we may recognize who Jesus is. May we recognize that he is now seated on the throne of the universe. You have installed your king in Zion, and the nations may rage, and the people may plot, but nothing will thwart your purposes. Help us to bow the knee to King Jesus and to live in the light of that day when he shall return and set up his everlasting kingdom in all its fullness. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.